0: Welcome to the seventh episode of the Product Weekend podcast, powered by Productized. This is where we meet the inspiring people behind great products. My name is Romoita, and today we have with us André Marquet, CEO at Productized and one of the speakers of the Product Weekend event. André has a long experience in product management, having worked in the field for around 15 years, currently working at Cofidis. Besides being a product leader, Andre is also a father, an educator at heart, and an entrepreneur. This is a very special episode, not only because it's the last episode of the season, but also because, despite being on almost all previous episodes, it's the first time Andre is sitting on the guest chair. By the end of the episode, you have some books, travel, and podcast recommendations from him. I hope you enjoy meeting the creator behind Eyes. How does it feel to be on that side of the table?
1: <laughs> yeah, great question. Well, thanks thanks for inviting me actually. It feels a little bit awkward. <laughs> I you know, I've been sitting in that chair for a while. Um and it's actually the first time that I've been interviewed by our own program. It's different, that's for sure.
0: Nice. I think it's going to be super interesting also for the audience to meet the the person i hope so i hope so i I
1: hope definitely hope so
0: all right um then let's start talking a bit about uh product management Mm -hmm. what is product management what would be your definition yeah
1: great um i think my my definition is basically around um finding the balance between the customer needs and the business needs right so it's that fine red line, or or balance of what is the best thing for the customer in his or her own perspective. Mm-hmm. That can only translate
0: into that business.
1: Can translate into business on at least the long term or medium term. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. You know, I, I usually tend to play that. You know, uh, if if you just think about the user uh, Mm -hmm. perspective then it's more of an artistic endeavor it's not a product management endeavor because Mm -hmm. it's all about impacting the user so if you are craftsman if you are a painter or a musician um or any kind of artist really You want to impact the user above everything, anything else. And sometimes that, that user might be just you, (laughs) the artist himself or herself, right? It's, it's a, it's a product of one for, um, self consumption and that's Mm -hmm. all good, but you're not. And you should not be worried about making money, right? Because mm-hmm. if, if you are an artist, and you
0: are actually worried about
1: making money Maybe for the sake uh, of money. It doesn't make much sense mm-hmm. from an artistic uh, conception perspective.
0: Yeah, when you were talking in the, in the product weekend, you mm-hmm. used one analogy, which is the, um, the architect. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, yeah, an because architect we, we, we did have delighting <laughs> more than the business. Right.
1: yeah because we we had an uh, we had an architect in the room and mm-hmm. she she did the question right she yep. was not a product manager I, I guess she's still not a product manager maybe she wants to be a product manager and um you know architects um in my view are the closest thing uh, you can be to a product manager on the artistic landscape mm-hmm. right because a, a good architect not only worries about the impact on the user yeah. but is also worried about you know is this viable yeah. is this Visibility useful costs. exactly so it's it's very much the same product mm-hmm. management mindset and and if you take marty kagan's um essay, it's not just about um you know the the three circles on the, the venn diagram you're now adding more complexity because you should also be worried about social impact, about ethical Mm -hmm. aspects, right? Right. And architects have been worried about those aspects for much, much longer than Mm -hmm. product managers. So, you know, uh, our architects are arguably worried about uh, the the societal and ethical impact of their work for at least, Mm -hmm. you know, mid-20th century. And I think that's a a much, much more recent discussion in the product Mm -hmm. space.
0: Right. To that point, what do you think is the role of product manager in society?
1: Yeah, great question. Uh, I, again, I think um, we, we can look to architects and we can look uh, to other uh, professional spaces that have been here for much longer than technical product management to to help us find some guidance and some kind of deontology from, for the profession. So I think architects, again, are a good example. Um, so th- if the question is Um, some guidance for the profession i I would look into the discussion that architects have had for the last 30 or 40 years around um, the societal impact of what they do uh, also Mm -hmm. the environmental impact and i think those are the most pressing discussions that we are now also having in the product space, mm-hmm. arguably because you now have a new generation of product managers uh, from Gen Z that Who are, are more, much more inclined to uh-huh. discuss that as well has in a search of their meaning towards, you yeah. know, the companies they're working for, whether they're right, corporates right. or startups. So you believe
0: that now the product managers is not only... Interested in uh, maximizing the value for the the customers and for the business, but also for society at large,
1: right? And and environment. So it's mm-hmm. it, it's it's becoming a little more more complex, right? Because society at large definitely is the one of the axes that you now have to compound mm-hmm. in that into that decision. Mm-hmm.
0: What do you think are some ethical constraints around product managers or things that a product manager should think about when they're doing their jobs, key areas or constraints they should be worried about?
1: Well, you know, definitely I'm not a philosopher. (laughs) Um, But you um, like to philosophize. Well, yeah, yeah, from a very amateurish (laughs) point of view, right? Mm -hmm. So I I think it it would probably be worse while for people in this profession to take um, professional stock out of the discussions happening in, the philosophical space and the the science of philosophy to also, um, you know, uh, understand uh, this discussion from a more first principles um, perspective. Mm -hmm. But the ethical constraints um, from a very common sense perspective, in my opinion, are don't do something to your users that you don't... um, believe it's the right thing in in, deeply in your heart right so Mm -hmm. if you are
0: so things like um making them addicted to to right making them addicted
1: making buy products and things that they don't really need nor can pay for Mm -hmm. um yeah i think that doesn't really make sense if if Mm -hmm. you are working that space um so yesterday i was actually having a discussion with a fellow product manager also um a student of one of our programs and Mm -hmm. she started working at this company and they sell you know ringtones and a bunch of um crap really to uh, countries in Mm -hmm. africa and people they don't really understand what they're buying and then when they do they cannot really easily stop it right so some some people (laughs) will go on this endless rants on twitter saying oh you know how can i Uh, Unsubscribe from Wall Street Journal. I think that's a classical Mm -hmm. example. Melissa Perry told it the other day and many other people say it as well. So Mm -hmm. does it, does does it really make much sense if you are uh, working into one of these institutions to make it really difficult for the user to do it? Maybe not. And those are very informed users. But if you are working with users that are uninformed, unliterate, whether it's uh, not literate from a financial perspective, then you are doing harm to those to yeah. those people, right?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's really important. The thing is, if you go with the more narrow view of like delighting customers and making mm-hmm. making money for the company, you may end up in those kind of things. So you will focus a lot on the onboarding experience, yes. but then make the offboarding experience as hard as possible. Yeah, but the you always
1: have agency, yeah. right? Um, mm-hmm. And again, not making the discussion here very philosophical. Mm-hmm. But maybe it's just part of what it is. You you always have agency as a person, as a a human being, and has a product manager because you sh- you should arguably be trained to think about it. Do you agree with what, what you're doing? When mm-hmm. you, can you sleep well at night? Yeah. Um. And if the answer is no, then you know you should not be you should not be doing that. Right. So that's mm-hmm. that's just my take on it.
0: Yeah. Makes total sense. Um, and how has your definition of product management management evolved over the years? So since you mm-hmm. first had contact, I mean, I think also the space has evolved. Yeah, uh, in I, th- I think specifically
1: here, here in Portugal, right? Yeah. Because that's really where I have more of a vantage point. So I, when I started, and I guess other people here in the podcast uh, kind mm-hmm. of said the same because people more or less my age... Um, same generation, when we came to the market, product management was definitely not a profession in Portugal, right? So mm-hmm. Joana Cardoso said it the other day. You know, mm-hmm. uh, product management was was very different thing. Was for consumer products, and they definitely didn't. Right. It's uh, it, more it was, related
0: to marketing. Exactly. It? Mm-hmm.
1: it was more of a marketing profession, and um, so it was not in the radar. Mm-hmm.
0: Um,
1: and 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 i i remember how i found about it right so i i was working for nokia here in lisbon mm-hmm. they they have a, a campus out, just outside of the city in alphaget and i was working on the iptv solution as a systems engineer i'm, I'm a telecom mm-hmm. uh, engineer by training mm-hmm. and i i found out they had a product management team and i ended up hanging out with those guys and Mm realized oh you do all the cool stuff you do all the (laughs) fun stuff yeah uh you look at metrics of usage you look how the product looks like you at the time writing product specs was was very much a thing Mm -hmm. um so this was maybe 15 years ago 14 years ago and um yeah i said you know that's that's i would rather do that than do what i'm doing here Mm -hmm. um so that's how i kind of started into getting trying to get into product
0: yeah. Mm-hmm. You already got ahead of, of my questions, but let's right. dive a bit into your into your path. And let's go a bit even before Nokia. Back in your childhood, what did you want to be when you grew up?
1: Uh yeah, I really wanted to be a scientist. You know, um I just knew I wanted to be a scientist. I've kind of always knew that since I was very, very young kids. Mm. Um, like
0: family influence, you know,
1: not really my, you know, maybe, maybe, uh, I don't know. I, I think, you know, I, I wanted to be Harry Potter because mm-hmm. Harry, be, way before Harry Potter had been invented, right? So, yeah. um, I was just fascinated by chemical stuff and the whole gizmos and, you know, right. I actually ended up buying um, a chemistry set uh, or a chemistry kit back in 1989. I mean, my parents did that and eventually um, it didn't go so well so um, what, <laughs> it was uh, what happened. so yeah so you know kids of the 1980s uh, are uh, I think they survived the 1980s right not because it was <laughs> it, it, you know back in the day uh, being a kid was uh, I guess much more dangerous than what it is now uh, parents mm. would be much more adamant to you know stay in the street just play out and they didn't care so much um Mm -hmm. so and the kind of toys that they were selling back then was borderline um dangerous (laughs) dangerous. (laughs) Uh, in this case they were really dangerous so this chemistry kit was more of uh, al-qaeda kit than anything else right so it had all this uh chemist chemical powders and and stuff that um problem shouldn't shouldn't be there at least not for eight year old kids and Mm -hmm. um Me and my friend, he was a little bit older than I was, we decided to do some chemistry experiences just out of the the playbook, right, Mm -hmm. the the booklet. And luckily, we had, like, a a a fairly big um, alcohol um, lamp, and um, it exploded. So, it's, yeah, it dozed on our clothes, and I I had, like, 30-degree burns for... The entire summer of 1989, I had to be in hospital. Eventually, um, I, I recovered. He recovered as, as well. But, you know, it didn't really stop me. Lucky thing, I ended up not being a scientist, right? I, mm. I ended up being an engineer. So,
0: Yeah, how did that happened. happen? Um,
1: yeah, it's, it's a great question. So, I, I have this discussion very often because it's one of my rants. I think the, the Portuguese high school... Uh, higher education system is is broken because mm-hmm. and Joanna told it here in the podcast as well Joana Cardozo so when you're 14 you have to choose one of four areas right yeah um, and out of those four areas a lot of people end up decoupling from science uh, all alone so it didn't happen with me I, I ended up staying with sciences all the way through um, but then what I see happen was that um, I discovered so. Uh, I'm a I'm a kid of the 80s, but I'm a teenage of the the 90s, right? Mm-hmm. So, WWW was just out there, um, and I I got fascinated by this brave new world of how mm-hmm. computers were interconnected, and I decided to go into computer networking and mm-hmm. engineering, which was at the time very much um
0: were amusing. you playing around with it already before going to university yeah
1: so <laughs> a bit uh, like the I chemist was. scientist yeah uh, i actually uh, so in my high school i was the the internet guru more or less so you know out of interest just i not that i didn't knew much more than maybe the average guy but i was just so interested that they when they hook up the first uh, you know shared computer to the internet there i was kind of the manager hmm. to uh, onboard other kids on uh, on internet and explaining them how to uh, how to access that so i was uh, voluntarily on the the library of the hmm. of my high school doing that yeah. for already for a there while. Are
0: some traits of a of a teacher which you yeah get maybe back to maybe <laughs> maybe yeah
1: yeah probably right never thought about it but mm. maybe that was the, the early beginning
0: and how was your path at university?
1: I think university, it's, um, at least for me, it was not uh, a great experience, right? And it was mm. not a great experience, not because I didn't learn a lot about it. When you are 17, and I was 17 when I got my uh, junior here, you know so little about the world, and you know so little about how, about how university is supposed to be. Um, and, and, and sorry to kind of go back to uh, other uh, podcast mm-hmm. um, guests but I think Andrea Kirk said something like oh, you don't know what is a good manager until you see a good manager right so yep. the same thing happens in machine learning right you don't have a, a good reference model until you know what is a good reference model and mm-hmm. the same for humans right you don't know what is a good university course what is a good experience until you actually find one and you, you, you understand what it is so right. um, yeah we were yeah. talking
0: about it also in the last episode with Roshan yeah the, before going there or if you go there before having any contact with the real world. so enjoy that much you might be lucky as much advantage as you as you could yeah absolutely you You might
1: if you go to a really top-notch university and that that for sure is going to be a a top-notch experience right because that's the purpose of being a top-notch university Mm -hmm. but um, yeah, so, um, so I, I regret, any... I, I regret some things, right? So I would recommend people to maybe do a gap year before going to the university, or I would recommend people or kids nowadays, and I get the chance to speak with some of these kids from time to time to actually get some, their hands dirty while they are at university getting like a programmer's job or, or something like that, mm-hmm. summer job or whatever it is. Um, so yeah. And so I I just and again university courses back then would take you 5 years of your life now it's luckily mm-hmm. it's much less it's 3 years yeah um and 5 years way too long to go through a bachelor's um mm-hmm. doesn't make any sense so that's actually one of the good net benefits of this um transitions that now it's much more reduced so it, it, the 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 cost of opportunity is also lower
0: mm-hmm. right Right, then before going into the professional path specifically, um I know that in your master's thesis you also did some research work yeah, in parallel I did. with it. Yeah. What what was that all about? How was that experience? What did you learn?
1: Yeah, actually mas- my masters was actually a little bit better, I guess, on average. So um I was doing yeah, I was doing something with which at the time was a little bit uh an orthodox so I, I was doing a master's in telecom engineering mm-hmm. but because i'm not a super technically minded guy i guess um i was trying to get uh, an escape route so okay i decided okay look so this was maybe over 20 years ago and back then video streaming was all the rage, right? So, this is before yeah. Netflix, before YouTube, before. So, internet um, video streaming in real time was still technically difficult to do for right. a number of reasons, mostly because of network reliability mm-hmm. and the fact that most video codecs were not so great. So, what we did. Is We did a partnership with the psychology department of the university, and right. uh, we decided to do a number of psychometric tests, I guess, very early versions of UX desks, tests, you would probably name it that way mm-hmm. uh, nowadays, um, and, and get feedback from real users, I Right. so in an engineering school this was a no-no it's like why why are you talking to people it's like right. you just use a sniffer you just use a proper psnr algorithm you get the peak signal noise and that's that's how you do your paper right you don't you don't do mean opinion scores yeah. that doesn't yeah, yeah. really fit in 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 our uh, engineering model but we were going that way because look um and, and 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 nowadays of course it's all about the impact on the user right it doesn't mm-hmm. matter if you have great psnr and then the, the user is still complaining and that that changed um and actually we did a model to to kind of predict this the the, the mean opinion score out of uh, pure objective scores and that actually uh, ended up being a patent so we were really excited about that we saw that Maybe we can convert this into a startup and, and actually make some money. It didn't go that right. way. But uh, it was maybe the start of my, you know, passion with a little bit of the startup world and entrepreneurship.
0: Okay. Right. Interesting. I mean, I didn't know about that. It's something that we have in common. I also did my master's yeah. thesis a bit on the side of psychology and teaching on rocket on rocket science i would like to know education of rocket scientists (laughs) okay (laughs) yeah we can talk about it (laughs) you should
1: be interviewed next time
0: well for another season all right who knows (laughs) um right then after your university experience you you started working and your first job was as a pre-sales engineer Mm -hmm. right yeah what did you learn there so actually
1: i i did a um, an internship out of, out of, outside of Portugal at a, at a program called In Off Contact. Mm-hmm. Still out there. Still a great program. I, yeah. I strongly recommend it. I think it's, it's a great opportunity if you want to do an international uh, career or if you just want to have an experience outside the country. And, um, yeah, I, I went to Tunisia. Um, right. it was, you know, it was great. It has a personal development experience, not, so great, maybe from a professional standpoint. Okay, I mean, um,
0: in what sense?
1: In in the sense that I was not doing a uh, purely engineering job okay. so I was kind of drifting away. F- but I was getting the, the perspective of the customer, understanding customer pains, and 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 I think when you are an engineer out fresh of college, you go to the to the job market, uh, you understand, you know, it's it's really not about engineering, so it's about customers uh, having their pain solved uh, having their problems fixed whatever it is so mm-hmm. that's that's basically like the biggest learning and then living in a arab muslim country mm-hmm. back in 2004 2005 just out of the 9-11 uh, and and the invasion of iraq back then mm-hmm. was quite an experience because you get to see a lot of what was the the other side of the um, the narrative mm-hmm. on the war on terror and how right. um, Arabs and Muslims were being depicted as the bad guy the bad guys back then, at least in uh, lots of the the, the Western uh, hemisphere, um, and, and obviously when you, when you go there and you, you realize, you know, the other side of the narrative, you you get the perspective on on, on both sides, mm-hmm. and you can do your own judgment i guess
0: yeah right that's super interesting i mean i've only been outside of europe once mm-hmm. but it was still in a very european environment but but yeah for sure working there must have been an eye-opening experience it was
1: it was it, it was very eye-opening i think it's the right right mm-hmm. word
0: right then your your experiences you had some uh, so you worked at Pre-sales at FASEC, then IT yep. consultant, um, before going to Nokia, as you were saying. Mm-hmm. How were these experiences um, still more on the technical side of things?
1: Yeah, pr- pretty much on, on the technical side. Um, so I, I was a, a telecom engineer all the way uh, to Nokia. And, and, and then after I left Nokia, I, I went to Huawei, which mm-hmm. is a Chinese... Yeah, company um, and s- uh, well, actually, before that, I I, I started working at a Portuguese soft- software house called Weed Software. Um, right. They are based in Coimbra, and that was actually my f- my first um, product management experience. Um, okay.
0: okay.
1: And this was 2009, so there was an entire revolution on mobile phones going on back then. The iPhone had has had just been launched, mm-hmm. um, or at least here in Europe. So there was this Cambrian explosion of apps and uh,
0: yeah, digital products, digital
1: products yeah. coming up, right? Um, mm-hmm. and, and everything was transitioning from the browser to the phone or to the iPhone or to the Android, mm-hmm. which, by the way, had just uh, been launched as well. So being the be, being in the mobile App space in 2008, 2009, 2010 was really vantage point to understand what was going on, um, and and that's when I met a guy called um, Vitor Domingos. Um, he had a, a project here in, in Lisbon called Mobile Mondays, so that he had a chapter of Mobile Mondays here in, in Portugal, mm-hmm. and and back then mobile was really the cutting edge of, of tech, um, as mm-hmm. you could, uh, yep. you know, I, I guess nowadays not so much but you know 12 13 years ago definitely that was the case
0: yeah right and so you you were saying before that it was at nokia that you saw these guys working in product management and you saw oh you're doing the the cool thing yeah exactly how can i get into that how did you uh land your first pm role? so i had
1: to actually um get out of the company so i tried to get a product job at nokia um mm-hmm. i pitched them myself several times actually had a very a very good relationship with uh, the manager that's so- a so-called senior product person there mm-hmm. but i i guess headcount was closed or whatever it was and i realized that they were not going to hire anyone else anytime soon um because the the product team here in portugal i think that's something people don't realize so much nowadays but Product positions in Portugal were not the same, and they were not a thing for two reasons. One, they were not a thing because uh, the the, the infrastructure of IT tech companies here in Portugal was not big enough. So, Mm -hmm. the the, the few companies that were doing tech for them, product was definitely not a thing. So, they were not even hiring product managers. And the international companies or the multinational companies that have had offices here in Portugal, they were not be having their product people here. So they would have their engineering people, maybe they would have some, obviously, sales for the local market and so on, mm-hmm. but not the product. And the reason
0: okay. was because... Product was closer to the business. Product to was the much closer quarters.
1: to the strategic decisions, okay. and mm-hmm. they didn't think that, you know, Portuguese would be uh, strategic enough or smart enough to, to do product management right. decisions, right? So, that, And I think that's actually the, the blunt truth. And mm-hmm. um, it changed a lot. The landscape changed a lot for the last 15 years or so and and and, and now multinationals and uh, you know companies that don't even have a a dime of a business here they would ha- they they have product teams in Portugal yeah. and increasingly so
0: right
1: so i ended up yeah i ended up um quitting uh, Nokia regrettably because it was one of my my greatest jobs ever and uh and uh, I got this position at uh, with software as an assistant to um product manager i ended up mm-hmm. actually being the, the, their first product manager <laughs> i just realized that after i got hired um yeah and and the rest is history as they say yeah right then i got, got finally got into the profession and i i don't think i have ever left it really mm-hmm. even if i was a founder later on yeah right Let, let's projects. get into yeah.
0: into that so you had a couple other mm-hmm. pm experiences and while still working as a product manager yeah. um, you started more your entrepreneurial life so you said that yeah. your passion for it sparked a bit earlier yeah it but did university years for sure actually executed uh how did you start organizing yeah
1: i I, I executed a little bit like you did rocket science right has has a more of Teacher or coaching others to become entrepreneurs. So that was mm-hmm. the idea behind uh, Beta Betai. E. Mm-hmm. Back then, um, we it, there was like a bunch of a group of people led by Pedro Jose We started meeting on a regular basis here in mm-hmm. Lisbon, and um, a lot, this this was really great people, right? So people that were coming out of Portugal. So yeah, you know, again, perspective of this were the. The Troika years. This were those years where the Portuguese economy uh, had come to an halt because of the, the the financial crisis, and mm-hmm. we had the the sovereign debt crisis here in Portugal. So what we we had this counter thesis that more entrepreneurship was needed, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, it was not a very popular thesis, but we were like a, a group of maniacs trying to do it. Mm-hmm. And, um yeah, and we, we did it. So, we were very much inspired by Y Combinator that that had just been launched in, in the US. And we thought that something similar could be done here. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. You know, I must tell you, when we were pitching this to even CEOs of big companies, the first question they would do is, oh, what is a startup? Can you please explain mm-hmm. something? Mm-hmm. People didn't even realize what a startup was yeah. or... You know it was it was really really uh, a different uh, mm-hmm. setting a different mindset
0: yeah and w- what exactly was it better better you were saying that it was to help and coach entrepreneurs but what <laughs> yeah. was it a product a non-profit what so it was, was a, it, it
1: was a it was a started as a non-profit right mm-hmm. it started as a non-profit to organize non-for-profit accelerators that were mostly financed out of sponsorships yeah. um so we would onboard dozens and i guess during the life cycle maybe thousands of uh, entrepreneurs to help them set up their companies and some of some of the the high-fledged the uh, companies nowadays that most people would recognize uh, were starting more or less the same time or actually were uh, supported by us or even invested mm-hmm. at, at the later phase
0: right and what did you learn there in your in your experience you were there still for some years, right?
1: Yeah, so I was there almost five years because I actually kick-started in 2009, so even before incorporation. And we, mm-hmm. we kick-started because I was organizing the, the first edition of the, the TEDx uh, event here in Portugal. Mm-hmm. And uh, so TEDx being the, the franchise of TED for independently organized uh, TED events. So we did the first here in Portugal. It was, you know, huge success, as you would expect. Um and, and then we used the money out of the, um, the, just the net profit out of TEDx to uh, actually incorporate uh, Betai, um yeah. in, in, in Lisbon. And, mm-hmm. and we had a great team. So uh, some of the people that we had in this uh, uh, committee of organizers uh, was one Pedro Oliveira, founder mm-hmm. of uh, Landing Jobs. We um, had, you know, Mario... Zualo, Martin mm. Valdez you know, uh, Pilar yeah. Malheiro, and and many many more people that were really uh, <laughs> there was a, it was a great great team um, mm-hmm. and and also the the group of co-founders the initial group of co-founders of BetaE back in the day so people like Pedro Manuel Tanger uh, Tiago Pinto Sofia Pessan and so on very mm. special group of people. Um, yeah. That were really, I think, um, be- believing in in this idea that we could make, you know, we could make a better world through um, entrepreneurship and better startups. Yeah. So in the beginning, it was very non for profit. So we were supporting mm-hmm. lots of kinds of projects. We're not really just into web, although that was one of the core things. But we were um, broadly speaking supporting entrepreneurship projects.
0: Yeah. So before the startup thing and Lisbon being the cool place, yeah, for we, startups we were to stay. pretty much
1: pr- we were the early pioneers of that uh, ethos of preaching. Lisbon has a startup um, capital mm-hmm. in in Europe,
0: mm-hmm. and were you uh, the ones that created the the Red Bridge? <laughs> To make it look like San Francisco. No, <laughs> no, but
1: we we did write some articles about it, and uh, also there were uh, a couple of other people here in in in, in Portugal, so writing about it back then. But um, we would be tagged as delusional, yeah. right? Um, you know, I think that's like probably the mildest thing people would say. <laughs>
0: <laughs> the nicer, the nicest things. Thing. Right? Yes. Yeah. And by the time you you left, um, did you have the feeling of? mission accomplished
1: i did i did i totally had Um, i think that you know in five years you know i i i sweat that shirt uh, a lot right so it was totally um (sighs) you know i i i was working like 80 hours per week on or or so right so it was Mm -hmm. seven days per week uh, working on on that project and everyone was very very committed so we organized the first beta start programs then the first talks to inspire then the first lisbon challenges um then the first uh, silicon valley comes to lisbon then the first explorers festival then the first startup weekend so we were doing as much as we possibly could mm-hmm. and if you speak to people like uh that are still very influential in 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 the ecosystem now they would, they have i think they have very fond memories of those days Mm -hmm. because the community was so small the community was so uh small that everyone actually knew each other and there was so little thing going on that actually everyone kind of met in those places people people were traveling all over the country to go to silicon Mm -hmm. valley comes to lisbon to go to this event for sure
0: nice amazing um, and you also uh, had another entrepreneurship experience.
1: Yeah, that's when I I left uh, Betai. E. Mm-hmm. That was uh, the free queue. and that was quite uh, quite one of the the most painful <laughs> experiences I I ever had. Um,
0: right? Can you tell us a bit about it?
1: Yes. Yeah, so, yeah. So, look, when you are um, on mentoring and coaching uh, other founders, I think you might get this idea that. Um, because you are a good mentor or a good coach or arguably a good mentor or a good coach, you, you can help others um, that you can do it yourself. And I was convinced that it was going to be mm-hmm. the case. Obviously, it didn't happen that way. Um, So we ended up incorporating a company and then going to a startup accelerator in, in Spain, in Valencia. We ended up staying there for um, six months or so. Then, um, then it didn't work out. And it didn't work mm-hmm. out because... Uh, founder dilemmas mostly and because the the founding team was not up to the challenge i guess um, and we were not able to you know to pivot to something that made sense but when you are such a young early team all you have is your founding team it doesn't really matter your idea mm. whether you have funding or not it's just a bunch of people right if that but if people is good, then you can shape mm-hmm. it in the right direction. And
0: in the team, did you have already someone also with some other entrepreneurial experiences?
1: Um, I don't think so. I think that that, that was maybe part of the, the problem. Although you right. you also have the counter positives of uh, lots of other people not having entrepreneurial experience and still mm-hmm. making good first entrepreneurial experience. Look, mm-hmm. um, chance display play a role as well. Um, moment in life. So there's. I think there's like... A, a, a billion things that conspire against you right. when you are building a, a product or a startup.
0: Yeah. Everything can go wrong. Everything, Everything it will go wrong.
1: <laughs> Can't go wrong. Will go wrong. And um, so yeah, it's it's a very difficult, painful process. Um, it didn't went so well. Then I came to Portugal and I was just about to have my first kid, and and I decided to stay here. My my mm-hmm. co founders uh, ended up going to startup Chile. Um, okay and and eventually they they ended up closing the company
0: okay Mm -hmm. so what were the main lessons you take from that experience or put another way what would be the main advice from what you learned there Mm -hmm. you'd give to uh so i I did an entire i
1: have an entire deck about it called Mm -hmm. 18 18 advices or 18 startup advices to to founders Mm. um look i think again team is critical so if you don't know the team and sometimes that just happens right you're just meeting people i think you have to work you have to understand how that people work so before you run and you incorporate the company um you should you should work with with that team of proto founders proto co-founders for at least a couple three months um on something to to understand
0: the work dynamic the work dynamic
1: works the chemistry is the same the culture is the same the values are the same the moments in life are the same i see moments in life very important because look Mm -hmm. you're much younger than i am right so i think Mm -hmm. you're in your mid-20s or so early 20s um Mm -hmm. so being in different moments in life if we were Mm co-founders that would mean that maybe look i have to go home pick my kids at six or so and it's like what the fuck are you doing? It's <laughs> six o'clock. We just started working, right? So yeah. you would expect to maybe work until two two a.m. and you'd be sharp eight a.m. the next day uh, to kickstart for another day because that's just the moment in life you are. You you, you know you're working sixteen hours and mm-hmm. you're loving it, and that's totally fine because from a biological standpoint you can you can take it and mm-hmm. psychological one I guess as well. Um, so. Moments in life and and just culture personalities all that will clash. That will mm-hmm. clash in a startup, right? That will yeah. that will happen. So make sure that you do that um, individual due diligence. That's the most important thing. That's really the to only thing I team. would, right. yeah, that I would. Because if that works, if if that team has the bonding, if the if the 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 chemical bond is there, then you will. They have much, much higher chances of making it um, mm-hmm. Everything else seems much more easier uh, if you do have the right team.
0: Right, yeah. That that thing that you're saying, um, yeah, if you have a family, you have to go home to yeah. care of your kids. And also one thing that you mentioned in those slides is that, like, as a 20-ish-year-old uh, person, you have, like, a health credit Yeah, you have a credit free credit <laughs> health <laughs> credit card. You yeah. do. Right? Um, do you think that extra effort, so putting uh, 10 hours a day, seven days a week, is yeah. something required? Yeah, it's, or like, it's possible it's like to, the to def- create something. Deaf
1: punk music. Be up all night to get lucky. Right. <laughs> you have to be up all night to get lucky. Yeah, you mm-hmm. do. I think in a very early stage of a startup, um, all that work life balance is. It's very hard to worry. I'm mean, in the beginning. It, it's a very, very painful process. So mm-hmm. if you don't have that kind of, uh, it's like you know, being in the military. You are a SWAT team. You're trying to get um some bad guy, and they're saying, "Oh, you know, it's nine o'clock, now we have to rest." It's <laughs> like the terrorist is over there. You have to kill him. No, no, you know, it's my, my shift is over. It's like yeah, <laughs> yeah but you know, the mm. the opportunity is now. It's not like your shift is over. Right. So. Yeah, you have to, to do what it takes, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that doesn't mean you should not be paying attention to managing your effort and paying attention to the kind of... And I think lots of founders today, I think that's one of the, the good things of this new age, uh, maybe founder spirit, is that they pay much more attention to things that still working very hard, but saying, you know, eating well, resting more or less well. Mm-hmm. Um but, again, you will have to say no to lots of aspects of your life. And if you have a family, if you have kids, and if you have um, other kind of um, things that are important to you, then it's going to be much, much, much harder.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. I, I saw also, um, I, I don't remember where from, but that um, the majority of young entrepreneurs, so 20-ish something fail the the best, yeah, in terms of uh, probability of success, it's when you're like in your forties or something yeah. like that. Yeah,
1: you know, it's the old maturity versus energy uh, binomial, mm-hmm. right?
0: But for those people in their forties, they still need to to put those those kind of. of I, I don't Do you know, know. I some, think so. Some examples, <laughs> you some know, stories? I'm
1: in my forties, but um, just early forties. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I think so. I I think look, the chances are, yeah, I've seen I've seen the stats uh, mm-hmm. myself um, for a while. And, you know, sometimes you have to look to those statistics with a grain of salt because they mm-hmm. just tell you entrepreneurship in general. And, and sometimes having um, stats for tech entrepreneurship, which is, I guess, what most people are thinking about, might mm-hmm. be different. So right. when I see those stats... I mean, stats, also in terms of
0: percentage, there's also... A lot more people in their 20s trying than in their 40s.
1: You know, arguably. Um, yeah, I'm just talking. Yeah, I I, I I, don't know. Um, I, right. But I guess what it turns out is that, look, if you were building a lifestyle business, maybe at, at your 40s, you can settle down with, with some kind of business like that. But then, of course, you have mm-hmm. lots of counter examples. People say, you know, uh, Founder X for co-founded this billion-dollar company at 45 and Founder why it's 50 years old and so on great um, yeah and I, I I definitely hope that's possible I still I still think that my my uh, next chapter is still coming up um, mm-hmm. I'm just not thinking that it is possible to do it unless um, you're, you're going to you know uh, you have to do hard choices on on, right.
0: on, on that process mm mm-hmm. right then let's uh, jump to one other entrepreneurial venture of yours, which yeah. is productized. Yeah, here we are. Here we are. Still alive. Still after alive. After term.
1: two <laughs> years of COVID, for <laughs> what is essentially a conference business, I yeah. must say I'm surprised.
0: Right. And why did you why did you create productized in the first place? Um, you know, f- oddly, uh, for more
1: more more or less the same reasons why I. I started, or I kickstarted Beta E mm-hmm. and I, I know most people might not find this the most compelling story. Sorry, I don't have a bullshit story to tell you. <laughs> I just tell you the story that I have, and you know, you know, the reason that made me start Beta E was that I saw it, and I still think that that Portugal is working. is like you know, it's like a good athlete, good genes, or more or less good jeans and underperforming, right? It's like mm-hmm. still running over the ten seconds, still not running high enough yeah, or jumping high enough.
0: Portugal goes goes to the beach and has a beer.
1: And <laughs> no, no, I don't think so. <laughs> yeah. I, I look, and and the the counter narrative is that f- fifteen years ago or twelve years ago when we were starting I people tell us, "You guys are fucking crazy. Why are you doing this? Like startups in Portugal? No way. It's like mm-hmm. it's like it's an oxymoron." Uh, and not just Portuguese people. Even foreign people say startups in Portugal. Like, no way. People, we would we would send mm-hmm. a, a letters or emails to investors. They would say, you know, there's nothing happening in there. And and now it's kind of the opposite narrative. Like everything seems to be happening here. Mm-hmm. Um, and and the same, I was realizing that the same was happening in product. So people were not paying a, 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 a attention enough to product. And mostly companies um, were still very much not. So, they had great engineering teams, great mm-hmm. engineering people. Uh, yeah. So, I, I was seeing this raw engineering talent right. that was used towards services and solutions. So, very little added value. And they, okay. would work, so they were they working, were building, building things they right, would, but not the right thing. And they were being hired pretty much like Indians were being hired uh, back in the day, like contractors delivering good stuff, very mm-hmm. output driven, not outcome driven and i thought this doesn't make any sense because you know there's a new world out there this product world that was just kind Mm -hmm. of becoming more popular with this um, narrative of uh, apps and so on and i thought that this would be a much much better way to create economic value so that's that's the reason i started Mm -hmm. and actually the product stays the project stayed inside my my shelf for two or three years even when I was in beta I was like oh we should do something like cool productize productize. because that that movement of productizing of creating a product right, right. Um, and then when I when I got kind of fired from my, my old company in a way I, I realized that maybe it was time to take that project out of the shelf and start it because right. there was no one doing it and in 2014 2015 the first, Product conferences uh, kick started. Mind the product uh, in London, um, the jam in London as well, that regrettably en- ended up closing the also due to the pandemics and, and other events out there.
0: Right. And from all the things you've organized, so from the conference, which were the, the biggest events, but also yeah. workshops, meetups, yeah, these podcasts, the newsletter, what are the what would be the fondest memory you you have?
1: Um, uh, yeah, I think the um, organizing that the conference uh, is uh, organizing a conference is at the same time super, you know, emotionally engaging, um, but at the same time is also um, it, it allows you. So I, I'll tell you what. Um, one of the things I really find um uh, most pride is when people tell me oh i met my co-founder at your conference Mm. or or i got into product at your event or i understood what i was doing in my life at your event people tell me this on a daily basis and sometimes people tell oh my boss told me so yesterday this girl oh my boss told me to go to to this um (laughs) Um, to the course because he was a big fan of yours so who's your boss oh you know this guy so i don't even know this guy so we have this random people kind of Mm -hmm. following what you're what you're doing your work and people like your work that that's really i guess Mm -hmm. that's really good right it feels good Mm -hmm. so but i think the the conference is really it it still is um the the highest um yeah that, uh, what, where, where you have the most, where you feel have the most yeah, impact.
0: That moment, the closing moment of the, of a, of a conference, at least for me, I have it. Yeah. In the events that I, I've organized, like when the event is coming to an end, it's mm-hmm. like, wow, we did it.
1: <laughs> yeah. That, that yeah. sense of accomplishment, everything kind of worked. Yes, mm-hmm. for sure.
0: Right. All right. Let's, uh, jump a bit to, product management specific topics we've been talking a lot about entrepreneurship um but yeah in this field of product manager it's important to to have a good dose of common sense as i was talking the other day with andre albuquerque um and also intuition which i'd say is quite related to to common sense Mm -hmm. Um, so intuition plays a, a role in helping us choosing what opportunities to to explore at each point Nevertheless, to go deep on any opportunity, like I think you shouldn't um, just go with gut feeling. You need customer research, data analysis. All these things are important to factor in. What role has intuition played in your PM role?
1: Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. Um, I, I, I know that Nrelk already suggested the book uh, Build by mm-hmm. Tony Fadel, and... And I think he, he writes a little bit about it, um, mm-hmm. intuition versus data. Look, my point on it is similar, right? Which is, into and it kind of relates to this 40-year-old guys being more successful than 20-year-old guys. So, mm-hmm. uh, on average, y- you should also, you also have your own data points, right? You also, as you live, as you have more experiences, you are... Mm-hmm this big machine learning machine right um, yeah. big has you know biologically big lots <laughs> lots of <laughs> hundreds of millions of neurons right so and and that should serve a purpose and I think the purpose is uh, good product managers are also good intuition machines right they have like a good doctor right good right. doctor is not just oh you know I have this computer I'm pressing the button and here's the the result? Mm-hmm. No, it's like mm-hmm. they have seen lots of patients, they have seen lots of cases. They look to you, and then they can uh, come to a conclusion based on the thousands or hundreds of thousands—I don't know—thousands and thousands of cases they have seen in the past. And mm-hmm. this pattern matching that you're doing uh, should serve a purpose. Mm-hmm. And I think that's that's how you should use intuition because it's it's okay. a hack towards finding. Um, um, more um accurate or at least more interesting Mm -hmm. ideas in the opportunity space um but then um yeah but but then always kind of going to 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 data to um complement your data points and not to uh overly and overly confident um Mm -hmm. then and that that's actually one of the things that Tony uh, Fidel is saying, is like most companies, they end up this coming to the state of uh, analysis paralysis because they're always trying to come back to data to justify decisions. And, yeah. and I think that's also one of the things we learned in the last 15 years with leading startups. Like, you don't really need to have lots of reports and market research studies like just build it and provided the iterative cycle is short enough that you learn fast it doesn't really make much sense to be waiting for the last super duper you better Mm -hmm. do it in a leaner way in an easy to fail uh, not too precarious way that you can keep uh, iterating than Actually, relying extensively on on data and just waiting for the best available data that might not actually come.
0: Yeah, yeah. Sometimes with intuition, you just know something. You don't know why you yeah, know it, but you've and been and there be- and you ready. saw that th- that pattern before, and your yeah, mind and, just and, and unconsciously then being, being ready connect. to to
1: backtrack. Right. So yeah. I think that's that's the look. I, I was. I, I know Joanna talked about Magellan, but I was actually watching the amazon prime series on magellan mm. just came out and and magellan he was trying to find the um, the way from the atlantic ocean to the pacific ocean right so you know he didn't know no one on his crew knew where the pass was the magellan mm-hmm. pass right so they didn't know because they, no one have ever at least no no european had did it before i guess no Indian had, had done it before neither so um what they were doing is every river, every single river they saw in the Atlantic coast of South America, they were getting into the river and then mm. they would go on the river and after a while they would put a you know a big bucket and would they would taste the water and the water was salty and they would say, "Oh, maybe this is the right pass." Mm. The salt was sweet water, then they would go backtrack back to the ocean, trying to find another All pass right. and it was doing they were doing this like one, two, three, as many times as possible, eventually they found the pass. Right. And the stupid thing to do is, oh, you know, sweet water. Okay, let's continue and let's just walk up the river or mm-hmm. navigate up the river for hundreds of kilometers to finally realize that it didn't work out and maybe we are killed by this Indian tribe and came over, right? So, yeah. And I think that's, that's the, the wrong thing to do. So it's intuition and then you keep validating if your intuition was right in the first place maybe it was not okay backtrack try again mm-hmm. eventually it's just easier than yeah. trying to get data where you will not possibly get that radar data
0: and do you recall any situation where following your intuition and not checking data maybe I've had a negative effect. Well,
1: productized for sure. I wasn't, I've definitely, I think I've never, I'm a very intuitive person. I'm overly intuitive, intuitive to borderline stupidity, right? So that, you know, I'm not saying you should follow my path. I'm just saying <laughs> you should follow good people path. But, uh, yeah, um, has in, um, if you are intuitive and you, you use your own, your, your intuition to find an opportunity, opportunity and then test the waters i think Mm -hmm. that's a good thing if you do it like i usually do it which is a very romantic way of doing it and then committing to it and staying on that path and whatever it takes you're trying to to go towards the whatever end line you set up yourself then that's probably not the most not the smartest thing to do
0: right um and what is your favorite thing about working in product
1: well, I, I think there's lots of flavors to working product, right? You can work in product and be the same crappy product for many, many years, and you are not super happy about it, and you get, and, and you know, it's it's just a, another job where you can work in product, and you are working on it, maybe a different product from time to time, mm-hmm. or more working more towards discovery. Uh, or wh- whatever it is, I think for me, what I really like is the early stage of of discovery, right? Um, so um, that's where that's where I've been closer to startup founders, teams, um, corporate ventures. Is is on that early stage of understanding the the business level sided um, validation of whether there's there was something there that was worse while mm-hmm. pursuing, um, right. so In that's early stage, early stage management, product experimentation. management experimentation. Mm-hmm. That's 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 for me. That's m- the most interesting. But I've met other product people that have very different perspectives, mm-hmm. and luckily that's the case. Otherwise, we would all be doing the same.
0: Mm-hmm. Right. In product management, who is someone you look up to?
1: In product management, look. I think you you always look up to the to the classics, but uh, the reference. But I when I when I think about people that inspire me, um, I think about Daniel Zacharias um, You know, I, you you ended up you ended up thinking about people that you either have worked with or or you had teams that worked with that person and they give you great feedback about how that person is working with them. Also, my my colleague, Paulo Gaudencio, for different reasons, right? Um, But here in Portugal, um, also Andrea Albuquerque, for sure. Um, My my colleague, uh, Rafael Laron. So people that have been they are very passionate about what i think that's like the commonality i've never met a good product manager and you realize oh that person is in the profession for the money i think that's something rare in product Mm -hmm. on 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 the long term it's like no one is although it's not a you know product people are not poorly paid on average um, I think it's it's very much a, uh, a profession where you feel mission people driven. are, it's mission driven. People are there because they have a mission. And I think that's actually the best thing of the profession. You feel that anyone in the profession for a long time or long enough to to be serious about it. It's in the profession because of the mission and mm-hmm. not for other reasons. Because they want to evangelize others, it's because they want they really believe in the ethos of creating products for the users and putting users in the first and uh, at the center stage. It's because they believe in product-centric organizations and so on and so forth. It's not because you know they're making yeah. <laughs> lots yeah. of money or anything like that.
0: Yeah, going back to that discussion we were having in the beginning of the conversation, I I guess the ones that are getting the most money are the ones working maybe on the let's say evil products like the ones like <laughs> you know trying yeah
1: maybe um maybe but even even those um yeah even those i, I mm. think yeah
0: probably I, I don't know
1: i haven't met many um in in that mm-hmm. specific situation
0: yeah. right let's jump to to another topic which is teaching uh we already mentioned it uh, slightly in the beginning but it's one of the important parts of your path. It's being an educator. You've been a teacher either as a guest lecturer or yeah. as a actual professor mm-hmm. in at least five schools. I yeah. don't know if I miscounted. I, I, I um, guess I've kind of stopped <laughs> counting at
1: this stage. <laughs> yeah.
0: How was that? How, how was that passion born?
1: Um, yeah,
0: actually, I think it
1: it was born in. Um, uh, so I, I was invited to to give classes when I was still in the early stage of my masters maybe. So this was almost I guess 20 years ago. Um, it was a very good good experience back then. Um, as in I felt that I was having real impact on those students. And when I say real impact it's like uh, vis-à-vis the the the, the you know other professors doing the same um when the results came out my cohort had much higher um, on average i had higher grades and i was not even scoring them myself it was like Mm -hmm. an independent scoring system so i was understanding the the real impact of having a good look you cannot underestimate the impact of a good uh, professor of or or a good lecture into Mm -hmm. people's life and i'm not even claiming that i'm a good professor nowadays i'm Definitely mm-hmm. have lots a lot to improve, and but I think that was really when I understood that oh this is maybe something I want to do, um, mm-hmm. and and the more recent uh, opportunities they have uh, mostly dealt with product and entrepreneurship um, space, mm-hmm. and more recently with Catholica with a product digital product management course that we mm-hmm. kickstarted uh, just on the outset of the pandemic.
0: Mm-hmm. Regarding that that course, the digital product mm-hmm. management course, uh, what has what have been the biggest challenges building it? Mm-hmm. Yeah,
1: so building was actually quite straightforward. I must say, I think iterating on each. So what what we're doing is we're trying to iterate each version of the course um, and taking stock of the the feedback of the students and making it better um on on each version and i think we're kind of succeeding doing that people that are going through the course they have successfully so th- this course is intended to people that are uh still wanting to go into product but not already professional so people that are working maybe in the marketing department or they have been working in the past as project manager and want to transition to product or or people that are um
0: like designers
1: d- well yeah i guess that's business. not so common but that mm-hmm. also happens or working on the business side and also want to do um or, or people that are early uh, product managers that want to have some more of uh, foundations of the of the you know the basics of the, the profession they just want to have also the opportunity to meet cohorts of right. other product people um mm-hmm. Because sometimes it gets lonely when you are a product person in the company. You feel that, you know, is there anyone else out there? Mm -hmm. Um, Especially in smaller companies. But you'd be surprised. Sometimes even in in bigger companies that you would not expect. Mm -hmm. um, And and people give you also this feedback that they don't necessarily feel that they are well understood. Or that, am I doing a good job here? Mm -hmm. It's like... Um, so having this community effect is very important. So that's what what we have tried to do with the digital product course, and I think it's it's working really well for mm-hmm. the last four editions. Now we have upcoming edition with um, in partnership with the Catholic Business School and also mm-hmm. Instituto Superior Tecnico Mais, and Productize, which is coming up in October this year. Right. Um yeah it's going to be a lot slightly larger so instead of seven weeks it's going to be nine weeks um and it's going to have more of the technical foundations that we found that people were also asking for so agile and also digital transformation uh a little bit of no code as well to complement right. all the rest of design thinking product mm-hmm. etc
0: great great and then this topic of teaching do Mm -hmm. you uh, do you have more affinity for the one-on-one model of coaching mentoring pms and founders that you've done or more for the one-to-many course format
1: um i think they serve different purposes i think one of the things that and maybe just digressing a little bit um regarding teaching is that look being being a good teacher being a good professor is, is also very hard. So, uh, one of the things that we try to do is also coach the coach, coach the trainer, coach the professor. And I, I don't think this is something universities are paying enough attention, definitely not paying enough attention. But even mm-hmm. at this, uh, at this executive courses, uh, the way I see a good professor is has a good uh, athlete, right? You have to be constantly, you know supervising their work you have to coach them to be better run faster mm-hmm. teach better uh, go through their materials um also from a psychological uh, standpoint help them to um, be better prepared mm-hmm. and yeah and i think there's there's a lot of work that needs to be done in that space
0: right yeah, um, I get the feeling yeah. that especially more academic and theoretical heavy um, professors in yeah. universities at large they put a lot of focus on keeping on top of the game on the technical side Yeah, but they disregard a bit the, the pedagogical side, side, side. side.
1: Absolutely and I'm, I'm a very strong believer on that uh, aspect. Then one of the things that we always try to do is to complement one to many with one to one so right. having conversations one to one with the students mm-hmm. especially at when when they have professional challenges, because everyone has different professional challenge. So for some of our students, it might be, oh, I want to transition into product. So where am I going to look for uh, opportunities in this space, like job opportunities? Mm -hmm. Or can you help me just check my LinkedIn or my CV? For others is no, I'm working in this company. How can I help create more product-centric culture or what kind of tactics should i be implementing so you know different Mm -hmm. people very different um challenges so you i think you have to complement both to be effective
0: Mm -hmm. all right um we are reaching the end let's jump to one more topic about the future not necessarily your future in particular even though you were saying that maybe you will still get into new endeavors (laughs) <laughs> so some of these topics, yeah, I think, may uh, yeah, be, I think may we all kind of are um, entrepreneurial endeavors. Uh, that's what I meant. Yeah, uh, but yeah, let's let's go to one topic of the last season. Uh, so for the ones that didn't follow, it was mostly about the future of cities mm-hmm. and smart cities. Yeah, from what you learned, being the host in that season, uh, what do you think are the some of the most interesting opportunities there, and what do the fi- what does the future hold? For the upcoming years, mm-hmm. so the season was about
1: the future of cities, um, and you know the, the rationale for organizing it was uh, thinking that uh, cities uh, can also be treated as products and yeah, have the they can same. Can also be productized. They can be productized to a larger extent, mm-hmm. and, and, and I think successful cities are being uh, more and more productized has in treating their citizens and has has customers they want to retain they want to uh, have refer referring to other people so they mm-hmm. grow right so they they actually uh strive um yeah. and i think that's the future i see for successful, successful cities having Um, So it it might be common for some cities having the CTO of the city, so people that are technically minded, making sure that the city is running well from a technical standpoint. But uh, the next level might be having the CPO of the city, like chief product officer of the city, to make sure that the city is becoming productized, being well productized that the, the, the digital interfaces of the city are going to be ever more important, right? Because, mm-hmm. n- you know, cities are, are also being digitized in many ways. Yeah. Um, so that's, you know, I that's like the most obvious uh, paves for um, development of cities that I, that I see. Of course, you can be very um, futuristic about it, and we had some guests talking about um, how uh, they are using robotics and drones and lots of lots of very interesting technology but um at the end it's a little bit like products like it's never about the technology it's always about the human aspect of the the need of the user and his Mm -hmm. happiness and whether his his life is being uh, fulfilled in a meaningful way
0: right um, or do you see some specific opportunities in the Portugal scene? Uh, so, I mean, has in
1: cities being privatized for sure, and I think um,
0: I think we are seeing a little bit of that, mm-hmm. maybe in Lisbon and Porto. Yeah. But we are also seeing another parallel trend, which is digital nomads and yeah, people sure. coming yeah. to for Portugal. Yeah. But they are mu- moving also to to villages. Have you Yeah, and no, about Well, not, not only, right? So Not only, yeah, of yeah, course.
1: Um, yeah, I think it's a great opportunity for other uh, non-necessarily urban environments, right? To, to capture people that otherwise they would not be able to to capture. But if the question mm-hmm. is, has cities in, in Portugal that I see uh, embracing this culture? I think Porto, um, Lisbon... Well, Lisbon, I think, has lots of potential, arguably, and not... I think that the challenge here in in, in, in Portugal is um, a lot to do with the fact that um, public administrations are kept uh, in many ways to hire talent. And I think the, the end game is always, can you hire talent or not? We are in a stage which, where... where It's a war for talent, right? So Mm -hmm. the most competitive companies are the ones that are going to be able to to attract the best talent. And -hmm. and public administrations, not just cities, but public administration in general are ever and ever uh, less uh, able to attract the best talent. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a real issue that we should be addressing in creative, out-of-the-box ways. Because if we are going to go... You know, uh, full tackle. Just g- going against uh, the private sector, the, the public sector is going to to lose because it simply doesn't have the, yeah. I- enough power to to afford and it, 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 that kind of talent. So, but there are other ways, and I just wrote an article about it, which is going to to be published in the beginning of August. Um about another topic that I'm also very <laughs> interested about which is the future of defense and I think right. whether we want it or not the uh, def- we might not go to defense but defense will come to us and mm. what is happening in 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 ukraine should be um you know should be a very compelling story to the rest of Europe to understand that you know you might want to avoid it you might not think it's important but Mm -hmm. you know history doesn't really care what you think it's important or not it's coming Mm -hmm. back to you
0: right let let's jump to that topic then what do you think are the biggest trends coming up in terms of defense and aerospace technology well look that's one of my
1: kind of my hobbies more 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 important than maybe the, the the trends themselves i think yeah i i think the what we are seeing nowadays is that War is becoming more and more technological, right? and uh, in in many ways, the, this conflict they are uh, so they are very, very they are using very creative ways of um, doing, you know, the, the humankind is, you know, is is great for good things and it's great for bad things. coming up with sometimes stupid and evilish ideas, right? And whoever has been through a conflict, uh, and luckily here in Portugal, we haven't, because for the last 200 years, we have mm-hmm. been at peace, right? We haven't seen any boots of foreign troops uh, in our soil uh, mm-hmm. since Napoleon uh, troops marched in Portugal in, you know, the early 19th century. Mm-hmm. And uh, if... And I think we lacked the, the historical perspective of uh, the, the conflict in Europe. And you can see now that in the statistics, you can see the importance that the Portuguese government is also giving to, to defense. Um, so uh, hopefully that will change, because if it doesn't change, again, we'll be forced to change by the, the winds of the, well, eastern winds that are blowing up.
0: Does, does it scare you a bit that you're not investing in this in this area? that we are not well that we are
1: not yes it does it does has a has a citizen of this this country it does uh, it, it it's it scares me more has a, a, a parent right I'm a parent of mm-hmm. three and um, and I think that in many ways we are disrespecting the interest of our future generations by not giving them um, and I think a defense has education to be honest so and I don't see defense as um, duty or anything else I think that the one of one of the, the the opportunities that we are lacking is not seeing that defense is also education and preparation towards better human beings um, and we are letting people go into the civilian market without giving them the 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 proper tools that they would need and that is in many ways not helping them prepare to a future which is very uncertain and um, i would rather give them so the the model that i'm that i'm defending that we should consider right now because we have as you know a full um, voluntarily, armed forces here in Portugal is that we um, we should consider military-aged uh, y- young people to um, to be going into this hybrid format of doing the university in parallel while serving in some kind mm-hmm. of armed forces institution and being trained by them. Um, and not yeah. being the, totally decoupled, because what we have right now is, is that the the, the the armed forces, they cannot compete against uh, the private sector for talent. So when you are an 18-year-old, you want to go to the university, the last thing you want to know about is going to the armed forces. And once you go to the university, you're basically out of the out of the recruitment loop for the armed forces mm-hmm. um and that's essentially the default uh the base scenario here for 18 year olds in, in in portugal so you know we have to, to rethink and redesign the way mm-hmm. that we are educating our young people and I, I definitely hope that is going to happen the next right. few okay. years
0: right i'm i'm curious to to understand how would you see while serving the yeah. armed forces, while at university, what kind of like the uh, traditional? Uh,
1: yeah, so the way I, I'm suggesting is that when you are 17 or 18, or something before, more
0: technological.
1: Well, I I think it needs to be technological because the, the future of armed forces are very very technological. They are all about cyber. They're all all about um managing uh, computer systems and and so on and so forth right mm-hmm. so that's that's not even the future that's the the current present of any armed uh modern armed force right. so what i'm suggesting is instead of going to this uh, national defense day mm-hmm. uh, which is basically pointless and in many ways totally stupid um you would rather uh, go to um, a nano boot camp of two weeks where you had you have a much you know a much better grasp of what mm-hmm. the armed forces really are and then they they tell you look you want to go to the university to the public university yeah great so we give you public university essentially for free here in Portugal and mm-hmm. all we ask from you is that we keep kind of tracking your progress and maybe some weekends you can do it with us maybe during the weekdays you can come here to the base um, or specific moments and during this one two three years we kind of um, we kind of do this co-hosting right you are doing it with university but you're also doing your path with the armed forces two things will happen two one when you do the the Nano boot camp, um, instead, of th- they will they will pitch you to go to interesting national defense uh, or national interest courses like cyber or uh, mm-hmm. computer science or um or counter um uh, t- intelligence intelligence mm-hmm. kind of uh, scenarios and, and and this is essentially what they they also do in, other, in in countries like in Israel and so on right so they they mm-hmm. they, they they try to understand. What are the best kids? What are the smartest kids? And those are the ones that are actually pitching to, right? And here is you have the opposite. You, you have this baseline of people that are interested in going to the military either because they are sons or daughters of people that are in the uh, in the armed forces or in the security forces at large. Mm-hmm. Like those ones are more compelled. But you know right. we are very close to the baseline right now, and the baseline mm-hmm. is. No, it's just a few thousand and that's mm-hmm. definitely not enough for the needs that we are having right now the needs we have in the future and then you could say oh but just going to the base no i think it's maybe for some kids is serving in the paramedics maybe for some kids is and when i say kids like 18 19 20 mm-hmm. year olds is going f- and and serving in a firefighter corporation Right. And you could say, oh, but can't they do that right now? Well, they can, but they're not doing it. And the the reason mm-hmm. is that you need to be opt-out and not opt-in. And now we have a full opt-in service. And for opt-in, it's designed to not be very compelling because they they don't have enough resources to draw mm-hmm. you as yeah. other parts of society uh, are able to to do it.
0: Right. right. Well, I think it's super interesting i haven't haven't actually thought about that topic that much but my my feeling is that especially generation z like the mentality is a lot of war is bad i don't want to have anything to do with yeah it's not about anything
1: in portugal It's really not about war it's about fighting fires in the summer it's about uh, helping old Mm -hmm. people that are in need is about teaching kids about computer science classes. It's about doing public service. That's mostly what most of these people will do. Mm -hmm. And yeah, if you have one or two weeks where they actually explain you some of the basics, well, I guess you, you're not going to, to die because of this. And of course, some few, some few people like, I don't know, maybe 10 or 5% will still want to be commando style. They'll still want to be, I don't know, really doing the, the hardcore stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, and that that would be great but for 90 percent, it's really not about taking a weapon and and start shooting is doing other stuff look in ukraine you now have uh, a lot of people in the armed forces at least all men uh, at least from 18 to i don't know 45 or so are are Mm -hmm. forced to, to incorporate right and i have a few friends in ukraine what they're doing is um if they are not particularly military fit right to go to the front and to, mm-hmm. to, to be and pick up it's because some of these guys were simply ha- didn't have any kind of military training they are you know they're preparing computers they are on the the 90 percent of the war effort is a logistics effort right it's preparing mm-hmm. um on the, the back end side. the back end sides mm-hmm. to make sure that the front end guys uh have enough resources to keep fighting mm-hmm. and hopefully in their case win the war
0: yeah yeah right that's super interesting. A lot of food for thought, at least for me yeah, personally. Yeah, hope so. <laughs> hope so. I, I
1: know it's not a very popular topic, mm-hmm. but again, I, I, I don't think this is something we'll be able to run away from, whether because it's conflict or because it's the climate change or because mm-hmm. it's simply the demographic winter that we are living, at and, least here in Portugal.
0: And do you think that is something that needs to come from the government and the uh, well sector. look
1: i'm a liberal right but uh, governments uh, still have the monopoly of force and mm-hmm.
0: for but do you see any role that private companies can play in this space? oh yeah I,
1: I think so definitely but not as in the hope I, I i don't think in uh, militias or um on that front i think uh, private companies um and yeah and mo- mostly private companies will have a lot um and have a great role on so-called defense tech and providing technology um, and some of this technology can and should be uh, so-called dual usage technology right it's technology mm-hmm. so again you are using uh, a macbook pro but if if you were having some some kind of drone controlling software on that macbook pro um then is that a weapon? <laughs> it just became a weapon, right? You're using it to kill or at least spy people. So definitely uh, we have lots of good talent out there that could be working on, on those kind of solutions.
0: Nice. Thanks a lot for teaching me about, about this topic and also for our audience. I think it's super interesting. Yeah, I hope so. Um, right. To, to wrap it up, what's one lesson from product management going back to where we were, um, what's one lesson from product management that you think everyone should know? Well,
1: um, I think the, the lesson, I think most important, maybe takeaway, it's um, managing stakeholders. It's not maybe just for product, but I think it's definitely very helpful. It's it's one of those traits that you develop, right? Um, mm-hmm. And if
0: you can't if you can get good at doing it, you can translate it to other areas of your life.
1: Definitely well. translate it to, into other areas of your life, but you, you can be much, a much more effective product manager, right? It's managing mm. stakeholders, being effective at managing stakeholders, expectations and so on. It's, it's a uh, one of those arts that, um, you should definitely try to develop, um, more than maybe some of the tactics some of the other aspects um because it's going to be with you for the rest of your professional life Mm -hmm. um yeah and i I think that that comes also with with experience but um Mm -hmm. but again reading um being mentored um maybe doing some soul searching to understand um whether you are doing it well or not and taking it easy definitely plays a role Mm
0: -hmm. great what would be one piece of advice you'd give to your 18 year old self yeah
1: so i thought a little bit about that question because you were doing it to some of the previous guests Mm -hmm. and i thought that um you're usually doing your 22 uh, and i think 18 makes much more sense because Mm -hmm. again i think the 17 and 18 year olds um is like the pivotal age in your life where you're doing lots of uh, important life decisions. Um, I thought that maybe um, one of the things that I would recommend myself is to trust in your uh, gut feeling, yeah, but also uh, give yourself enough space, enough credit, I guess, but also enough um, slack so that you can search for your answer, right? So, when you are, I think the most important thing is maybe that when you are 18, um, you're still young, so you can still take time to invest in trying to understand what you want and who you are. And... um, and and if you if you can find opportunities to do that, whether it's um, soul searching, whether it's working, whether it's uh just taking it easy for some time and searching it out there, that's one of the the recommendations. I think the second recommendation is it really pays off to have um you know to have good um, mentors in your life or people that can actually help you um, mm-hmm. and, so and
0: look for those people
1: s- look for those people yeah mm-hmm. do do invest a lot in looking for people that can uh, 10x your life um, because those people are out there good mm-hmm. advice can definitely be 10x good yeah. advice can be 10x in your life can be 10x in your business can be 10x in your you know personal uh, affair can be 10x in so many aspects that if you really um search for it you might be able Mm -hmm. to find it but you have to invest so yeah you have to invest in leveraging because if you don't you will not be leveraged
0: all right so reaching the end what are your three favorite books so i i talked about uh well favorite has in product
1: i think built uh, from tony fidel uh, i just mm-hmm. read it um it's it's great um I, I strongly recommend it um
0: also for a short introduction i recommend uh, his talk on the lex friedman podcast
1: yeah yeah actually that's what i where intro. i where i learned about the book and mm-hmm. And um, yeah, and I think I read it in like two nights or something, and I was like, "Wow, this is so <laughs> such a such a uh, great uh, s- well, story!" Because he tells the most of the stories of uh, how he built mm-hmm. lots of the products that now we have in our pockets, like the iPhone and so on.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and th- so, I, I I usually like books about how people build stuff, like build products and stories about building those products. Um, so
0: more, you're more into stories than to like playbooks. Yeah, you know, handbooks.
1: I I also read those like business mm-hmm. playbooks, and kind of, uh, I think the good thing about Tony's book is that it it's kind of in between. It it's, it's it mix, tells yeah. uh, stories about how they built the product, but then it also gives lots of uh, very. Uh, insightful um, aspect on on business and and start uh, and startups and entrepreneurship and, and product um, another book is almanac um another book is almanac of naval uh yeah it's also one of those books you you read in maybe one night or two um and it look i, I think it's it's a great book for anyone that is 18 or 19 year olds if you can, if and beca- you can because you, you couldn't like two or three years ago when the book uh, didn't exist, right? Mm-hmm. But you can now. So, it's like, yeah. it's one of those things you feel lucky to be alive at this moment and be 18 because you can't take advantage of all this good stuff that just came out in the last 20 years. Right.
0: Yeah, no, the, on that I haven't read a book, but I also listen a lot to… To these Yeah, I think they, they actually have an entire podcast it, that with, is like with the chapters.
1: Up, Yeah, right. with the chapters of the book. So if you're more an auditory book, yeah. guy, just mm-hmm. go that way. Um, and another one is uh, Turning the Ship by someone that has the same surname, oddly, um, uh, Navy, uh, Navy commander, of uh, retired Navy commander of the United States uh, Navy, um, Miss, Mr. Marquis. And yeah. um, it's about empowering teams and it's about um, helping teams achieve to their best, uh, not by, you know, um, direct line of command, which, which is kind of... Uh, a paradox because this guy's coming for, from the Navy. So we, he, you would expect him to be a very hierarchical chain yeah. of command, but the way that he has built trust and uh, empowered his uh, team of submariners is, is, uh, is definitely um, a great inspiration for anyone building a squad, building a product, building a team, building
0: a startup. Good ones for sure. I mean, turning the ship around. I think that's the name of turning the, the ship around. Yeah. Great. And what are your three favorite cities? So definitely Lisbon. Um, I well, think everyone is answering Lisbon, but yeah. I, I do, I do like the city. <laughs> and so. a,
1: again, uh, my relationship with the city is kind of a love hate relationship because, uh, again, I'm, I'm always thinking, Oh, how can this be better? And I'm very frustrated about those micro frustrations that, uh, city management, um, Is imposing on you Mm -hmm. um but again it's it's uh it's it's a lovely city that i'm very uh lucky to live on yeah out maybe then istanbul in in turkey i think it's a magical city where you do feel very much inspired by east and west and the dawn Mm -hmm. of uh civilization in many ways also
0: very eye-opening for me when I went there. Yeah, you were yeah. there?
1: Yeah. Yeah, I think it, it was also very eye-opening when I was there the first time. Um, mm-hmm. And and maybe... Look, I, I really like the... I would say, like... <laughs> it's hard to say, but... Any specific city, but I, I like Boston in in the in US and uh, not just Boston, but the, the region. Um, it's, right. it's, uh, it's very, mm-hmm. very beautiful.
0: Right. And to wrap it up what are your three favorite podcasts besides product. Uh, well or obviously uh, <laughs> i think all of their po- all of the
1: podcasts were already featured but uh mm-hmm. o resta historia i should have come prepared with this one <laughs> uh yeah just looking here uh o resta historia from lex friedman well i was very much a listener to the a16z podcast but they haven't been so periodic for the last um few uh, years for some reason mm-hmm. but i would be between a6 and z podcast and maybe the deep end by on deck so i did the on deck program last year i strongly recommend you check out some of their programs and they do have um a podcast called the deep end um which i strongly recommend with founders and 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 people that are doing stuff and breaking things
0: perfect amazing recommendations for the audience andre thank you thank very you. much <laughs> thanks so it lot. was a oh, pleasure yeah. having you on sure. that side <laughs> of the table thanks thanks Joel. thank you for listening to the last episode of the product weekend podcast season if you haven't yet make sure to check the previous episodes for insightful product conversations to keep up with what's coming up Make sure to follow the Productize newsletter and also to join the Product Weekend community at theproductweekend.com. Hope to see you next time.